So if I was to ask you who the most famous dog in America has ever been, you might answer Lassie. Any other guesses? Old Yeller, yeah, Rin Tin Tin, any others? Benji, he's a classic. I grew up on Benji. The Taco Bell dog. Is that the Yo Quiero Taco Bell? There's some famous ones. But if you go over to Scotland, you know who their famous dog is? Greyfriars Bobby. Let me tell you the story about Greyfriars Bobby. True story. Back in 1850, a gardener named John Gray, together with his wife and son, moved to the capital city of Edinburgh, Scotland. John was unable to find work there in Edinburgh as a gardener, and so he went to the local uh, police station and joined the Edinburgh police force as a night watchman. And to keep him company through the long winter nights, John found himself a little watchdog. It was a Sky Terrier named Bobby. need to go back to the prior photo, ideally. So a Sky Terrier named Bobby. And so Bobby was his constant companion, night and day, through thick and thin, winter and summer, they were faithful friends until John died about two years later of tuberculosis. And that's where the story gets pretty interesting. John was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard, and in the days following his burial, Bobby touched the hearts of the local residents when he refused to leave his master's grave. Every morning, Bobby could be found at John's graveside, even in the worst weather conditions, before long, Bobby's fame spread throughout Edinburgh. It is reported that almost on a daily basis, the crowds would gather at the entrance of the kirkyard waiting for the one o'clock gun that would signal the appearance of Bobby leaving the grave for his midday meal. Bobby would follow William Dow, a local cabinet maker, to the local coffee shop where his master used to eat. And each day at the coffee shop, Bobby was given a meal. This went on day after day week after week, month after month. The kind residents of Edinburgh took good care of Bobby, but still he remained loyal to his master for 14 years. This little dog went faithfully to the dead man's grave, and he kept constant watch and guard over the grave until his own death in 1872. Scotland's capital city will always remember its most famous and faithful dog. They called Greyfriars Bobby. And so here on this headstone for Bobby, his headstone reads, Greyfriars Bobby. Let's go to that next photo, please. Greyfriars Bobby. He died the 14th of January, 1872, at the age of 16 years. Let his loyalty and his devotion be a lesson to us all. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us. To us all. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. I encourage you to pull out your message notes as well as we pick up and continue the message we started last week, looking at these first 20 verses in Luke chapter 10. As we saw last week in this chapter, we're given a close up look at the loyalty and devotion of these 72 hand picked followers of Christ who Jesus sent out two by two into the towns where he was about to visit there in Judea on his way to Jerusalem. He sent them out two by two. He handpicked them, and they proved themselves to be loyal. They proved themselves to be devoted as he gave them this mission. 
to prepare the people for his coming. And as we saw last week, Jesus didn't call these 72 to fail. But at the same time, he didn't necessarily call them to succeed either. He did, however, call them to be faithful. He called them to be faithful. And he calls you and me to be faithful messengers as well. So let's open up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to raise up and send out workers into his harvest fields. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and you are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you often and say much the same thing. Lord, this is your word, not ours. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word that is living and active today. If there's something in me that needs changing, God, would you change it? If there's something in my thinking or my behavior or my priorities that needs realigning, Lord, realign it today. Do your work in this place, Lord, because your word is never intended to return to you void, but always intended to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So, Lord, bless us and guide us as we study your word together today. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, are you ready to dive into God's word today? Okay. Yeah, I heard you guys in the front row. That wasn't bad. Wasn't bad. Turn to the people behind you and ask them the same question. Let's see if row two is just as anxious. Ron and Wanda, you're like, no, we're good, just the two of us here. <laughs> I wasn't looking over on the right, so Ron, they may have been the same over there. I don't know. Well, we're ready to dive into God's Word. Amen? So last Sunday as we began our look at this great passage, we focused on the first four verses in particular. And in these four verses, we discovered five insights that Jesus wanted these 72 uh, faithful messengers to know before they went out into those towns to do their work. And these are five insights that he wants you and me to understand as well before we disperse from a service like this one this morning and go out and do our job. And what's our job? Well, job number one is we... 
remind you often is on that first banner, we are to share the good news. Jesus said there in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 before he ascended into heaven, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he he was very careful with his choice of words before he gave us those marching orders. Before he gave them, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The authority and the power that rests in the hands of Jesus Christ is fully behind those marching orders as he says, go and share the good news with all those you come into contact with. And so we saw these five insights last week. Let me just review them quickly. Some of you may not have been here last week. The rest of us have slept seven times since then. So I want to make sure they're fresh on our minds. Insight number one, this is the game of our lives, but our team is too small. So we need to pray for our coach to put more players on the field. We saw that insight in verse 2. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are, they're few. And so we need to understand it's important to pray for our coach to put more players on the field because with 7.7 billion people on the earth, that is a huge mission field. And we need more Christians out there sharing the word. We need more prayer warriors praying for the word to be shared to the uttermost parts of the earth. We need more missionaries. We need more funders of missionaries to help support the work financially so that the needs can be taken care of of those going to the uttermost parts of the earth. Interestingly, right right after instructing his followers to pray for more gospel messengers, Jesus turns to the 72 in verse 3 and says, Go, I am sending you. He says, Go, I am sending you. Jesus turns to you and me. He says, Go, I am sending you. Insight number two, the stakes are too high for any of us to sit on the bleachers. Jesus is telling you to get onto the field. Amen? He's saying, Get out there. The workers are few. Pray for more workers, and once you've prayed, get out there. You're the answer to your own prayer. That's a little sobering. When Jesus, I, I, I prayed for more workers, I was thinking of other people. He says, yeah, I know, I know you're thinking of other people. And I'll raise up some others, too, and answer that prayer. But the first person I'm raising up is you. So you pray for more workers, and then you be the answer to that prayer you just prayed. See, the reason the whole world hasn't been reached yet with the gospel is because you and I haven't reached our own neighborhoods with the gospel. We have to take responsibility for our small corner of the world. A little bit later in this message, I want to share with you a little bit about what our elders and and I have been discussing in recent months because we are dead set on doing what those banners say we're supposed to do. We are bound and determined to do a much better job of reaching Victorville than ever before. And we look out on a Sunday like this one and say, well, Dane, I see a lot of empty chairs here. Yeah, you see a lot of empty chairs here, but I am fully confident that the chairs will not be empty for much longer. Because when we start talking about this stuff regarding carrying out our mission, and we start rolling up our sleeves and saying, you know what? I hear you, Jesus, loud and clear. I'm going to do my part from this point forward, and we're doing this together you better believe that we'll be doing a better job of carrying out our mission than ever before. I'm excited about it. Insight number three, the competition is as fierce as wolves. The competition is as fierce as wolves. It's rather remarkable. A lot of people uh, don't like it when the state of Alabama takes a biblical moral stand and says unborn babies will no longer be killed in our state. 
and social media blows up. Evidently, that ticks a lot of people off. And surprise, surprise, a lot of people also get ticked off when followers of Christ try to throw them a spiritual life preserver and let them know that we have a holy God who put us on this earth and he calls people everywhere to repent, to turn from our sin and get our our lives in line with his word. Isn't that interesting that a lot of people get ticked off when we tell them the truth that they desperately need to hear? Now, it doesn't necessarily matter for some people that we share it in love. It doesn't matter that to many people that we share it tactfully. Sure, there are some Christians that pound people over the head with the Word of God, and they have no tact. Uh, they have no love in what they're doing. But most of us share the Word of God in a loving way, in a tactful way, and even still people will get ticked off, won't they? Don't be surprised if enemies of the cross start growling at you and showing you their teeth. And Jesus said it right here. I'm sending you. But you need to know that you'll be like lambs among wolves. And wolves, one of the things that is pretty habitual with wolves is they like to show you their nice sharp teeth. They have a big growl and oftentimes have a big bite. But Jesus says, go anyway. Insight number four, the travel amenities aren't great. We see that in the first part of verse four. Have you ever noticed that good ministry doesn't pay very well? Ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that good ministry doesn't pay very well? Have you ever noticed that great ministry pays even worse? Good ministry doesn't pay well. Great ministry pays even worse. Jesus says, hey, the travel amenities aren't going to be great. I love, I think it was in Wearsby's commentary, he pointed out that as Jesus sent them out, he made it very clear, if you speak peace into a home and the person takes you in, you stay there until it's time to move on to another town. Now, you may be staying in that house and they may be serving you cold cereal for breakfast and bologna sandwiches on cheap white bread for lunch and dinner. And they open the windows and you smell next door, they're having a barbecue with some tri-tip. And you're thinking, maybe I should have stayed next door. But he says, you stay where I put you, because the amenities were never intended to be great when you're doing good ministry. You focus on the job at hand. You eat whatever they put before you. He says, you're not going to make it rich doing ministry. You never will. At least not rich in the way that the world considers riches. This last week, Rosie Nahara, Rosie, you're over there, aren't you? Wave to us. Most of you know Rosie. When Rosie gets excited about something, Rosie's excited. So every once in a while, I'll be working on my sermon or something, and, and Rosie will come into my office, and she'll come through the door. Pastor Dane, Pastor Dane, I've got to tell you something. And she's grinning ear to ear, and I never can say no. She comes in, Pastor Dane, I've got to tell you something. She comes in a few days ago, Pastor I've got to tell you something. I said, what is it, Rosie? She says, so my grandson, Aiden, he asked me the question this last week. Uh, who was it? Oh, it was Gianni, sorry. It was Gianni comes to me and says, is Pastor Dane rich? Is Pastor Dane rich? And Rosie said, I thought about it. Yes, Pastor Dane is rich. And Gianni says, I think so too. So Rosie's telling me this story, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I like this story. I was getting a little offended here. Doesn't little Gianni know that I drive a 2005 Honda Accord with over 100,000 miles on it? Doesn't look too great sitting in the parking lot out there. And why does he think I'm rich? Do you think I make a killing off of ministry? And so I'm starting to get my little temper up a little bit. And then God calms me down and allows me to check my ego at the door and start thinking about what Rosie has just told me. 
And I got to thinking, you know what? I've got a wife who loves me, a beautiful wife who loves me. I've got four beautiful daughters. Most of them love me. God's blessed me with a wonderful roof over my head, a house I couldn't afford today, but when it came time to be available on the market, the, 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 the uh, housing market was at the absolute bottom, and so we were able to get into a nice home. Praise God for that. We've got vehicles that get us back and forth. I've got a wonderful church that I get to be a pastor of. Being a pastor, I think, is the greatest job in the world. I get to, be a, 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 to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to hopefully be a blessing to you. If I'm not, don't tell me. You might hurt my feelings. God has given me all of these things, and I got to thinking, Gianni and Rosie are right. Yes, I am rich. Yes, yes. Amen. From the mouth of babes. So Jesus wanted the 72 to know, and he wants you and me to know, that if you do good ministry like he's telling us to do, don't expect to get financially rich. But if you want to get spiritually rich, there's no better thing to do than serve Jesus Christ. Doing good ministry spiritually pays really, really well. Insight number five. The time is short. We find this in the second half of verse four. The Bible tells us that Jesus' return is very soon. We don't have time to waste. We must take advantage of the opportunities we have to do great ministry. This afternoon, our leadership team, the elders and I, are going to get together and continue discussing and praying about what, what God would have us do in the months to come. Most of you who have been a part of this church for a while know that over the last three and a half years, that we have put before you that we believe at some point in the future God is going to be opening the door for us to move more to the center of town, move to where the neighborhoods are, move to where the people are because we're in the middle of this ghost town on a Sunday morning and it's really, really difficult to get people here for the first time. And so for the last three and a half years, we've mentioned this at various times to you. Gary, uh, he was the chairman of our elders up until this uh, newest cycle starting last month. And uh, Gary came up and, and shared with you in early March that, hey, this is still the plan that God has put before us, and we're praying about this and talking about this. We'll continue to do so this afternoon at this meeting. But I'm here to tell you that the time for that exciting move is probably closer now than it's ever been. And we've really stepped up our efforts in recent months because we believe the Lord may be stirring in our hearts that the timing is coming very quickly. And so please keep us in prayer as we continue to look at possibilities out there in our community. Continue to explore this possibility of taking a leap of faith and going where we can do better ministry on a Sunday morning than we've been able to do in years in this location. And so I'm pretty excited about what the Lord's going to do. It's a little scary. It's a little frightening. I can't stand up here and tell you what the exact timing is going to be. But please pray for us because we want to make sure whenever God opens that door, that we are ready to walk through it. And we want to make sure that God's timing is the timing that we latch on to and say, Lord, if this is your timing, we're fully on board. We're not going to drag our feet. We're not going to jump the gun. We want to go exactly with the timing that God has in mind for us. And please, please keep us in prayer. So uh, hopefully in the months to come, we'll be able to give you some more specific updates as to what the Lord is doing. But we have a sneaking suspicion that the time is short. 
we have a sneaking suspicion that God will be opening up a door in the months to come. And when he does, we hope that this whole church will be walking through it with us because God is going to do greater things through the ministry of First Christian Church in the days to come than he has done in days past. Praise God. Amen. So I like to say every once in a while for FCC, the best days are yet to come. You can count on it. Now, let's look at four steps for effective witnessing uh, that are very important for us to glean from verses 5 through 9. Many people over the years, as they've gone to share their faith with non-Christians, have come up with an evangelism model, an evangelism model, a way to share your faith effectively with those that don't know Christ. And so over the years of being a Christian, I've learned a lot of these different models. Uh, as an intern, uh, back in the 90s when I was doing my ministry internship, I had to memorize the evangelism explosion model for sharing my faith. I still use that oftentimes today when I'm leading someone to Christ. In Bible college, I was taught an evangelism model called the Peace Treaty. Oftentimes with our kids, when we do the kids' salvation class here at FCC, I'll teach them the bridge model where you have God on one side and man on the other, and sin is like a grand canyon that separates us from God, and Jesus is the bridge to God. You draw a cross across that canyon. And so many use that model. There's probably hundreds of different evangelism models that Christians have come up with to effectively share our faith, which begs the question, why do Christians have to work so hard to come up with evangelism models? Wouldn't it have been easier if God gave us a model right here in the Bible to follow? If leading people to Christ was so important to Jesus, why didn't he tell us how to do it? Well, as a matter of fact, he did. Right here in Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, Jesus gives us four steps to effective witnessing. Let me reread these verses for you again, just so they're fresh on our minds. Jesus says, starting in verse 5, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to the feet, to our feet, we wipe off against you. But be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So here in these verses, Jesus is uh, making it so clear that there are these steps to follow when the 72 go into a town. And I believe these same four steps are ones that he wants us to follow as we go and do his work. So step number one, pray and speak kindness and peace into the person's house and into the person's life. Pray and speak kindness and peace into the person's life. In verse 5, Jesus tells the 72, when you enter a house, first say peace to this home. Now, in Hebrew, what's the word for peace? You remember? Shalom. Even today, uh, the Jewish traditional greeting is shalom. Shalom is translated peace in English, but it means much more than peace. To a, a Jewish person who has some deep roots in Israel, shalom means so much more than just a hello or a goodbye or peace. This word shalom refers to something much deeper. I like how Chuck Swindoll explains this word shalom. He writes, 
The meaning of shalom goes deeper than just the absence of war or battles or arguments. Shalom carries the idea of wholeness and prosperity in every aspect of life for the Jews. The term shalom described the quality of life promised in the kingdom of God. So imagine living in Israel 2,000 years ago when a stranger might come to your door and you answer the door and he gave you the greeting, Shalom. What that person was saying was, I hope and pray that you and your family are happy. I hope and pray that you and your family are healthy. And I hope and pray that you and your family are richly blessed by God. Wouldn't that be a nice thing for someone on your doorstep to say to you? I hope that your family's happy. I hope they're healthy. I hope they're fully blessed by God in every area, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, that you could possibly be blessed. That might be a guy you might want to invite into your home. That's a lot better than what the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us when they knock on our doors. What an amazing greeting they would give in those days. So that is an amazing greeting, and it translates, I think, this way into our culture today. For you and me, Jesus is basically saying step number one of effective witnessing involves us praying for the person who we are hoping to share Christ with and speaking kind and edifying words into their lives. And so for years when we've gone out on some door-knocking campaigns as a church, one thing I have consistently taught our teams is to make sure they use a prayer sandwich. Some of you have heard me use that term before, a prayer sandwich. What on earth is that? Before you knock on that door, you pray for that person you're visiting. Amen? You pray that God would prepare the soil of that person for that conversation you're about to have. So you pray for that person. You pray for that household. Maybe you're walking up to the front door and you see a tricycle on the front lawn. Well, that tricycle is a quick red flag. There's some kids in this home. Let's pray for the kids. Maybe you see something else as you're walking up to the front door and it triggers something in your eye. Okay, we need to pray for this. Maybe it's a wheelchair right outside the front door. Maybe there's some health issues in this home. Let's pray for that before we knock on the door. And so you pray for that family. Then you knock on the door. As they open the door, you have a conversation. You share a little bit about Christ if he gives that opportunity. But at the very least, you invite them to church. So that conversation about Jesus, that conversation about church, is like the meat and the cheese on that sandwich. And then once you wrap up that conversation and you're walking away from the home, what do you do? You pray for them again. So you've got prayer. You've got the meat of that interaction, sharing Christ with them or inviting them to church. And then you finish it off with prayer. It's a prayer sandwich. And so I think Jesus is saying to us here, make sure that you talk with him before you talk with people. I've mentioned to you in the past that the first conversation a man on earth ever had was a conversation with God. Remember that Adam was created first, and before Eve was ever on the scene, he was walking and talking with God. And so I think that's kind of a red flag from Genesis chapter 2 with God saying to the rest of us, make sure you have conversations with God before you have conversations with people. What a marvelous insight Jesus gives us. Speaking peace into their lives means you pray for them. You speak kind and edifying, uplifting words in this world where maybe that person has been cursed up and down throughout the last week. You make sure that you're speaking good, kind, peace-filled words and prayers into their lives. Step number two, build a meaningful relationship with the person. Build a meaningful relationship with the person. 
Jesus outlines his second step in verse 7. He says, stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Here in this verse, Jesus isn't simply explaining to his messengers where their food was coming from. He was more importantly letting them know that building relationships with those we want to witness to is crucial. Sitting down over a meal together was a sign of friendship and acceptance in Jesus' day. And we need to do the same with others today. Sitting down and having a meal was a sign of friendship. That's why Jesus was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because who was he eating meals with? Tax collectors and sinners. And so he was, oh, you're a friend of tax collectors because he was simply having meals with them. But that was intentional. He was building relationships with them so he could have a platform of credibility from which to share the good news of Christ that they desperately needed to hear. So let me ask you, is it a good idea to spend time getting to know someone before we tell them about their need for Jesus? The answer is absolutely yes. Let me ask you, is it a good idea to take the initiative to reach out to other people that don't know Christ and build friendships with them before we lower the boom about Jesus. Is that a good idea? Absolutely. We need to build relationships. One of the simple facts is, Christians, the longer that you serve Christ, the fewer non-Christian friends you have. You notice that? If you've been a Christian for a year, you probably still have some good connections with non-Christian friends. If you've been a Christian for five years, you might have a few. If you've been a Christian for ten years or more, chances are you do not have close friendships with non-Christians. You've kind of left them behind and moved on to your focus on Christ and developed new friendships with Christians. Well, it's wonderful to have strong friendships with Christians. The downside is we're supposed to be witnessing to those non-Christians we've left behind. And so many Christians will say to me, even our teenagers at time, you know, Dane, I don't uh, really have any non-Christian friends. Okay, why not? Why not? We have to be intentional, don't we? I look back on my high school years, and one of the biggest regrets I have is that I didn't have the guts to reach out to people that needed to hear about Jesus because I was so busy hanging out with those I was comfortable with. I look back and I can still see in my mind as I was going to the quad, now my normal spot to eat lunch at my high school I went to, I was going to the quad and there was that girl that was a loner sitting off by herself reading a book by the library. And there would be those others that were rejects at school and I'd have that thought, maybe I should go up and, and be brave enough today to have a conversation with them and sit down and have lunch with them. And I dropped the ball because I was too chicken. And I have those thoughts, man, if I was back there, if I had a time machine, I'd love to go back and do a better job reaching people that needed to be reached. Adults, if you don't have non-Christian friends, I ask you, why not? God has called you to take the initiative. God has called you maybe to have the initiative to, to take out your phone one day and you shoot a text to a coworker and say, hey, you want to grab lunch later today? That takes a little bit of guts. It takes some initiative. But, you know, I never have lunch with that person. Exactly. But that person needs to be exposed to a Christian that knows Christ. It takes a a little bit of guts to walk to the next door neighbor that you hardly ever talk to. Just a quick wave as you're going into your garage as you come home each day. It takes some guts to go next door and knock on their door and say, Hey, the wife and I were just talking. Would you guys like to come over to dinner at our house this Sunday night? It takes some guts. 
But Jesus Christ calls us to take the initiative. He calls us to build relationships with others. And yes, I think it's a marvelous idea, teenagers, and it's a marvelous idea, adults, that your closest friendships be with those who believe in Jesus Christ, who follow Jesus Christ, and have the same values that are a good influence on your family as you would hope that they would have you at their house to be a good influence on their family. Yes, those should be our strongest friendships, but shouldn't we at least have casual friendships and fellowship with those that need the message of Jesus Christ that he has given to us? To share? The answer is absolutely. Jesus has asked us to build meaningful relationships with those that desperately need to hear the gospel. Step number three, meet the person's felt needs. Meet the person's felt needs. When Jesus tells his 72 messengers in verse 9 to heal the sick, I'm convinced that Jesus is saying, before you address the person's greatest spiritual need, First, address the person's felt physical need. A drowning man isn't ready to hear how Jesus saves until someone throws him a life preserver, right? If you ever are on a cruise and you see someone bobbing up and down in the water beside the ship and they're screaming, help, 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 that is not the time to lean over the rail and give them a full gospel presentation. The first thing you do is look for the nearest life preserver and you chuck it out to that person. And then once they're safe on that, go ahead and tell them about Jesus. Amen? A starving man isn't ready to hear the message of salvation until his belly is full. One thing that ticks me off is when I hear of someone going into a restaurant after church. And instead of leaving a tip to the waitress, they leave a gospel track. That Christian knows that that waitress, if she doesn't know Jesus Christ, that Christian knows her greatest need is to be saved, correct? But the problem is she doesn't know that that's her greatest need. And all it does is tick her off and doesn't help her pay her bills if you're giving her a gospel track instead of a tip that she needs to take care of her kids at home. So you tip that waitress, and I would encourage you to be generous in your tip to that waitress, and then you have a platform from which to share the good news with her. If you and I have the ability to meet a physical need for someone who we hope to lead to Christ, we should meet that need. As a wise man once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Quick funny story. My first year here at the church back in 99, we had a group in our church that wanted to bless the homeless. And so they decided for Thanksgiving, we were going to do a big Thanksgiving meal in our fellowship hall and open our doors wide and invite the homeless in. And so we did that. And guess what happened? No homeless showed up. Go figure. There's no homeless that live here on an abandoned Air Force base. And so we kind of felt like heels. And so we got to go into the streets and get them, just like Jesus said, right? And so I'll never forget, Danny Ritter and I, we hop in my car and we drive to downtown Victorville. And we're on 6th Street at nighttime after dark in November. And there's a lady standing on the sidewalk beside the street. And so we roll down the passenger window. Hey, we've got a meal going on at church. You want to come join us? She's like, no, thank you. And we drove off and then it hit us. That was a prostitute. We were so anxious to meet a spiritual need. We were completely naive and oblivious to what could have happened in that situation if there had been an officer in a car behind us. You were inviting them to church. Sure you were. 
Sometimes we're so excited to meet the spiritual need, we don't meet the physical need first. Jesus, I believe, is saying here with this step, make sure if the person has a blatant need, do your best to meet it, and then share the gospel with them. Step number four, simply tell them about Jesus. It says the kingdom of God is near. In verse 9, Jesus says, after you heal the sick who are there, tell them the kingdom of God is near you. In other words, Jesus is coming. And since Jesus is coming, salvation is coming. So you'd better decide today who you're going to follow and serve. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to follow someone or something else? I hope and pray that you choose to follow and serve Jesus. Give them that simple message once you've reached out to them with peace and kindness and prayer. And as you reach out to them, build a relationship with them. As you build a relationship with with them, meet those felt needs. And as you meet those felt needs, tell them that simple message about Jesus. Quickly, let's pick up in verse 10 here. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, not the judgment, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus gives these woes here. In verses 11 and 12, his 72 messengers return. And as they return... Uh, After these verses, I should say, not in 11 and 12, but as they return, they're sharing this wonderful report, this wonderful report about what Jesus had done through them and that even demons were submitting to them in Jesus' name. And in the process, uh, Jesus is making it clear that certain towns that reject him and reject his messengers are actually going to be worse off on Judgment Day than Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions Sodom uh, there in verse 12. Uh, He mentions uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida as uh, two towns that Jesus had already been to that had rejected his message. He compares them to Tyre and Sidon, which were two towns in the Old Testament that were known for their wickedness and known for rejecting God. And God eventually brought judgment on Tyre and Sidon, so much so that he had them raised to the ground. Not only were their buildings knocked down, but it was raised to the ground through Alexander the Great, about 350 years or so before Jesus came onto the scene. He is saying that these towns where the uh, 72 would go and visit, if they have their message rejected, it would actually be better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom on the Day of Judgment than those towns that reject Jesus. Because when Jesus comes in the flesh into your town and you still reject God's message, that is bad, bad news. You see, the message is God's. And also the harvest is God's. He wants his disciples to know that I am sending you and you are giving my message. And ultimately, if you are faithful, that is your job. Your job isn't to have success. It isn't to fail. Your job is to be faithful. You leave the results up to me because I am the Lord of the harvest. Both the message and the harvest are God's. Verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions 
and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke doesn't tell us how long the 72 were gone. Maybe their mission was a couple weeks long. Maybe it was a month or two. We're not told. But whenever they came back, they were on cloud nine because God had used them in amazing ways. They may have been sheep among wolves, but those sheep got a lot of work done for Jesus, didn't they? And so three quick points that I believe Jesus makes here. Number one, it's not just demons that lost ground as they did their faithful witnessing. The prince of demons, Satan himself, lost ground. He fell from heaven like lightning. I mentioned last week that something that fires me up is when we kick Satan's butt. That gets me pretty excited. So when Jesus steps back with his spiritual bird's eye view and says, when you are effectively witnessing and sharing Christ with people, and they give their life to Christ, and they're baptized, and they begin growing in their faith, I look back from my bird's eye view, and I see Satan falling like lightning. Man, that adds some incentive to me sharing my faith. Not only is that person's life transformed, and they get to spend eternity in heaven, and spend the rest of their life here on earth experiencing the greatest life that you could ever live on this earth, because there is no life on this earth better than a life lived for Jesus. Not only do they have those perks, we have the added bonus of Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I think that's a pretty good incentive to share our faith. Number two, Jesus says, he gives his faithful messengers authority to overcome all obstacles and attacks that would keep them from faithfully fulfilling the marching orders Jesus gave them. Jesus gave his faithful messengers authority to overcome all obstacles and attacks that would keep them from faithfully fulfilling the marching orders Jesus gave them. What a wonderful thing that is to know, that Jesus always has our back when we do his work. And when we share the gospel, he always has our back. He'll give us what we need to overcome those obstacles. And number three, Victory over demons is a temporary triumph, but the ultimate victory is eternal life. Therefore, it's our eternal life in Christ that should bring us the greatest joy. Jesus says, that is good news that the demons submitted to you when you mentioned my name. It's good news that you were able to lead people to Christ. But ultimately, our greatest joy is not in the success we have in ministry, Our greatest joy is in knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we are saved, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we get to spend eternity with God in heaven. Isn't that our greatest joy? Jesus tells us there, yes, ministry is exciting. Yes, ministry is good. Yes, ministry should bring joy. But that joy should never hold a candle to the joy you have in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so one last thought, that little doggy, Greyfriars Bobby, for 14 years, every single day, built a reputation of being loyal and devoted to his master. And I pray that you and I, every day of our lives, will be just as faithful and loyal to our master, Jesus Christ, just as faithful and loyal in carrying out his great work and experiencing the joy that comes with that, of seeing people saved, of seeing the saved grow in their faith as disciples, and seeing the world transformed by Jesus Christ, and all along knowing that our greatest joy is our relationship with Him. Father God, we come to You and we thank You.
We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for our salvation. Lord Jesus, help us to be joy-filled witnesses and faithful workers for you. Lord, oftentimes we roll up our sleeves and we do work around the church building. Oftentimes, Lord, we serve in significant ways. But, Lord, we want to do those things as well as serve you in the most significant ways. Lord, would you allow each of us to directly be able to share our faith with those who need Jesus? Would you give each of us opportunities to firsthand see lives transformed by the power of the gospel and rejoice with them as you wash their sins away and make them a new creation? Lord Jesus, would you give us greater opportunities in the days to come to be faithful messengers for you? Because, Lord, you've made it so clear the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and you are sending us into those harvest fields to do the work. Lord, send us and send others with us so that we can have a greater harvest in Victorville than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.